The following audio is from Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn to the book of Titus. Book of Titus chapter 2. We'll be there in a few moments. Last Sunday morning, we learned the purpose for which God created the church. It was discipleship. I listened to some of Pastor's message this morning. I wondered if he had stolen my notes a little bit. (laughs) It's amazing how that works, though. The truth is, last week's sermon didn't get recorded, and so there's no way he could have actually copied me on purpose. (laughs) So, yeah, um, it seems like this is an area in which the Lord is working in our church, in our church's life, and I think that's a wonderful thing. I don't think there's anything more important that the church can be excited about and be passionate about and be doing than discipleship. Everything that the church does ought to be done with this goal in mind. Many things in the church are often done just because that's how they're done. Just because that's how they've always been done. Just because that's what churches do. We don't spend enough time actually thinking through what we're doing and why we're doing it and what we're accomplishing and how we could better serve the purpose for which we exist. Discipleship. So when we finally arrive at the conclusion that our church is here for discipleship, the next question we have to ask is, how do we do that? And that's where we come to this passage in the book of Titus. Um, It seems to me that a great deal of what the church did in the New Testament was not in the form of weekly or monthly age-segregated activities seems to me when you actually look at the things that we know the church did, and I do honestly think that God left some of what the church is to do and how often we're supposed to meet, uh, certainly we're, we meet on Sundays, but how often through the week and what all, all the meetings that we have look like, he left some of that open to us because it does change from culture to culture and from time to time. But when we look at the New Testament, we very clearly see one thing happening. And that one thing is we see believers meeting together, fellowshipping together around the Word of God. We see discipleship happening in abundance. And it's not just these age-segregated youth groups or these age-segregated college-age groups or the the groups just for the the older ladies or the younger ladies or the, the men's breakfast. It's not just those things. Now, are those things evil? No, they're not. They're not bad things. But if we lose the purpose of the church, and that's to discipleship, and that is for these ages to kind of overlap and to help one another out. If we lose that, then we're in a lot of danger. Because then we come, become just a, a, a place where there's kind of clubs for every group. And we just learn about your style and what you like and what age you are and, and where you fit in life, and we find a group for you. But that's not what the church is made to be. The church is made to be a, a large group of people, discipling, loving, Um, helping one another in in all our various stages of life. So we need to keep in mind what the purpose of the church is as we do our age-segregated things so that that we teach one another to actually go beyond that, not just do that. The heartbeat of the church is making disciples of Christ, and there are some things we can do as a church to improve. So if you turn your Bibles to the book of Titus, I want to revisit some of the verses that we looked at last Sunday morning, so that will sound familiar for a while, and then look at a few more verses this evening. Um, I really think this is such an important thing, it's worth, it's worth looking at a few times. 
Titus chapter 2, verse 1. Paul writes to his son in the faith, Titus, whom he has discipled. So this is part of even that discipleship process is Paul writing this letter to Titus. He says, Titus, speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. There are actions that align with true teaching and there are actions that do not. There are attitudes and motivations and words that align with true teaching and with truth and there are words and actions and motivations and and attitudes that don't. And so you need to teach people the things, not just teach them the truth, but also teach them what aligns with the truth, what's suitable to the truth, what's proper beside the truth. In verse 1, Paul lays out the goal, right teaching and right behavior go hand in hand. And we said this last week, that preaching and teaching are not enough. They're not enough. And this is the conundrum that we as preachers find ourselves in because the Bible does say a lot about the importance of teaching and preaching. I mean, you look through what Jesus did in his ministry, you look through the example of the church in the New Testament, you look through all of the letters and Paul's emphasis on preaching, especially in the the letters to Titus and to Timothy, and you see that it is a, a priority in the church. In fact, I don't think that pastors have a greater priority than the preaching and teaching of God's word. Nevertheless, to have people go from unbelievers to believers to maturing and mature believers, preaching and teaching is not enough. It's not. And so we need Example. We need these commandments to be repeated, to be exemplified. We need people in the church to step up and disciple one another. And so, he is to speak the things that become sound doctrine, so that, in verse 2, that aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in the faith, in charity, and patience. Titus, you need to teach the older men to be clear-minded, to not be obsessed with, with these Um, things that will um, trick their mind or beguile them, to not just get obsessed with conspiracy theories and with all these things out there in the world, but actually practice true wisdom, common sense, to to be sensible. Don't just be sober. Think clearly. To be honorable or worthy of respect. Don't be someone who treats people and just just not kind ways. Be somebody that's honorable. Treat other people with respect. Um, especially when you're talking about how they treat women. It's, it's the worst thing. I have, an, I have somebody I know <laughs> that I get together with a couple times a year. And when you're around this person, you just feel dirty. And it's a, it's a strange thing. That's not honorable. That's not, that's not somebody that's practicing dignity. That's not what it means to be grave. Okay? We want men that are, that are honorable and worthy of respect. And so be that kind of man. Don't act, eat, or dress like a slob. Be somebody who is worthy of respect. He goes on, he tells them to be temperate, to be self-controlled, to control your impulses, to be lazy, and to lust, and to be gluttonous, to be in control of yourself, to be healthy in your faith, to you trust God and you know and want to know him better. You, you love people. You give yourself that expectation of something in return. You are faithful. That's patient. Faithfulness. Steadfast. Um, you can depend on you to be there. And it's not like we always have to, to put this carrot in front of you or like this promise of reward that you're just there. And you're the type of person that can be depended on. Uh, 
Older men, this is what we need. This is what younger men need to look at. We need to, to see men who are honorable men, who are there, who, who love God, who want to know him, who love people, who treat them kindly and with respect. We need guys that we can look at that are going to act like that because nobody, none of the younger guys are going to automatically become that. My kids won't grow up and just automatically become this type of man. They need people in this church to step up and be examples. We all need that. Verse 3, the aged women likewise, that they be, they be in behaviors becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. Just conduct yourself in a way that is pure, that is holy, that your lips are speaking truth. That you're not allowing wine or, or any other intoxicating substance to overpower the Holy Spirit's work in your life. Your soul should desire to know God, to know him more deeply, and to teach what you know of God to others. Be sweet, but not empty. Be pure, but not uptight or judgmental. Be classy, but approachable. Be wise, but humble. Care about what happens to the next generation of ladies. We look at the older ladies in the church, you've got to see it not just as something that you're, you look at the younger ladies and you see them and you're like, oh man, in my generation, we would never act like that. I would never say something like that. I'd never be so obsessed with clothes or with whatever it is. Don't, don't just sit back and think that you're not in any way, shape, or form responsible for the ladies in this church. Be an example that they can look to. Insert yourself into their lives. Sometimes you'll have to ask an awkward conversation like, hey, do you want to go out for coffee sometime? I'd love to have you over for lunch. I'd like to just spend some time with you. You don't have to, to sit them down at that first meeting and tell them all the reasons that they're terrible people. That's, that's not the way to go about it. Tell you something, if you show people that you love them, they will look at you and want to be like that. Your example is going to go so much further than your words. And, can, and the other thing is, your words mean very, very, very little if people don't feel loved and if you don't back your words up with your example. So why? Why is it so important that you do that? Well, verse 4, that they... The older ladies may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. And I think we can point out the obvious here that Paul is clearly speaking about young women who are married. It seems like with young families. And there's a lot of people that argue about what exactly this passage means. Is Paul saying that, that women can't have careers, that they can't have jobs, that they, they shouldn't pursue higher education, that, that all of those things are a waste of time. And I think that sometimes we, we try and push Paul's purpose too far. So we're trying to look at the very, very practical rules that we can create in our lives so that we can categorize everyone else and say, well, this person's working, therefore they're disobeying this command. And I don't think that's the purpose of the text. I think what Paul is doing here is he is saying something, because we said last week that the text has to mean something. But I think what he's doing is he's here saying, older ladies, it's your responsibility to teach the younger ladies that they should prioritize their home, that they should prioritize what's going on there. Um, Tara pointed out this out to me last week after I spoke. And she said, do you know what's funny? When you look at Proverbs 31, you look at the virtuous woman there. First of all, that woman is a superwoman. I mean, unbelievable, the qualities that are listed there. 
But you look at that virtuous woman and you find somebody who, who is working hard, who is even at times going out of the house to do this. I actually just listed kind of the qualities that you see very quickly in Proverbs 31. And starting at verse 10, we find that she is a safe haven for her husband. She's somebody that her husband can go to and, and, and feel loved and feel safe and feel respected. She does him good and not evil. She works hard to go out and to collect food, even from afar off, so that she can feed her family. So she is going out, but you see that her priority is the home. She gets up early to feed her household, even to feed her servant girls. She buys property to build a garden. So she's going out there and she's making deals to buy, pro- buy this parcel of land. Why? So that she can grow a garden. I mean, she's, she's this hardworking, thinking person who is going out there and problem solving and, and trying to do what is, whatever is necessary to take care of all the responsibilities that she has at home. Likely, she's going out to buy this parcel of land because she's got teenage boys and the food she was collecting before just didn't do it anymore. It's like, what am I going to do? I'm going to buy another garden, I guess. And so she's doing that because she sees the need. She is physically strong. She works hard, even sewing clothing for her family. She herself dresses well. She is kind and generous toward the poor and needy. Um, She keeps her family dressed warmly. Her husband is well-respected among his peers. She makes and sells fine linen in the marketplace. She has inner strength. She is honorable. She is hopeful about the future. She is wise. She pays attention to her family. She works hard for what she has. Her children and her husband sing her praises. And finally, most importantly, she fears the Lord. This is what an honor... And and so, like, don't tell me that in any way, shape, or form, the Bible diminishes women or their abilities. This is a superwoman. I mean, this is insane to think that any person could do all of those things. No man could ever do all those things. And yet here God is saying, this is what a virtuous woman looks like. And here, I don't think what, what Paul is saying to Titus is, make sure you, the older ladies teach the young ladies that they just need to stay home and just, just like, you know, do their little stuff there, their, their little menial, unimportant tasks while you as a man go out. That's, that's not it at all. Hey, the Bible expects a lot of women. And it takes a lot of thinking. It takes a really smart lady to keep all those things going. And I think what is happening here is he's just saying your, your focus should be domestic. The focus of the young ladies, especially young ladies that are married, that have young kids, your focus should be on your home. Your priority is on your home. Verse number five. Young men, likewise, exhort to be sober-minded. Last week I made a joke about young men and and their ability to only think about one thing at a time. And here we find in verse 6 that the one thing that Titus is told to tell the young men is to be sober-minded, to be right-minded, to think clearly, to think soberly. But he goes on in verse 7, and this was pointed to me very kindly by some folks in our church, and I'm I'm thankful for that. In verse 7, Paul continues speaking to Titus, but this time I think what happens is Paul directs his attention toward Titus because he said, Titus, you need to tell them to be sober-minded. But along the same lines, still dealing with these young men, there's something that you need to be for them because they also need to be these things as well. And so in verse 7 he says, 
in all things showing yourself. Paul, and this is actually exactly what discipleship is supposed to be. This is happening in front of our eyes right now. Because now it's not even Paul speaking to Titus and saying, as a preacher, stand up and tell everybody this. He's saying, okay, tell them to be sober-minded, Titus. But this is what you need to be before them. In all things, showing yourself a pattern of good works. In doctrine, showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity. Sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. Paul's emphasis here is on young men, and the best method to reach these men is to have other men, like Titus, exemplify these things. Uncorruptness, to be pure, to have incorruptible doctrine, or doctrine that is without error. Careful not to be corrupt. To have gravity. This is to be venerable. To be accorded a great deal of respect. And so in your doctrine, you should be serious about your doctrine. You should have a high esteem for the word of God. A high esteem for the truth. There should be some depth and some weight to the way you think about theological things. If you're, if you're a young man, or if you're trying to be an example for your young men, then you should be taking this stuff seriously. We are so far off base if we think that it's only the pastors that are supposed to be theologians. Now, you've all heard that everybody's a theologian, some are just really bad at it, and that's true, but, but we are all actually called to be good at it, to, to do our best to get into the Word, to study, to learn, to grow. We ought to take opportunities. One of the things that, that gets me, and I, I honestly don't know why this is, and, and I think that someday I probably will, but I don't understand why more people don't take opportunities to learn when they're given them. I don't understand why more people don't try and just set up times that they can get into the Word to grow, or why when there's teaching and preaching going on, why you, why you wouldn't want to be there. I understand that there's times that you can't be, and there are times that um, it, it's impossible, and that makes complete sense, but in general... I feel like that should be the attitude of the Christian is just, man, I, I want to learn. I want to grow. If there's something I could learn here, then let's, let's do it. <clears throat> Sincerity. This is genuineness or authenticity. Uh, I think this is kind of the word that describes what um, most people in church today think is the most important thing, which the truth is it, it is important. We should be authentic. We should be real, but the idea is that um, this isn't just some religious thing that you keep in the top of your mind that doesn't really impact your life. This is something that you're real and passionate and sincere about, that you are authentic in your faith. Sound speech that cannot be condemned. As Titus, you are to speak in a way that when others listen to you, when others hear the, the, the truths that are coming out of your mouth, they can't pick them apart. They can't, they can't say, well, look at here, Titus. Your life doesn't match anything about what you're saying. Or look at here, Titus. This, these two things completely contradict one another. Look at here, Titus. The word of God says this, but you're believing this. You should have sound speech that cannot be condemned. And so Paul, as he's speaking to the young men, decides not even to address them fully. It's almost like he says, you should teach the men to do this, but Titus, this is what you need to do before them. And it's, it's more important that Titus exemplifies this than even telling them that. Now you might say, 
well, Dan, you just told us all those things. So are you doing what Paul just told Titus not to do? Maybe. <laughs> I hope not, um, but maybe. But I am saying that it would be my responsibility and your responsibility um, to exemplify these things as well. So hopefully we'll just do that and then we won't worry about all that other stuff. Verse number nine. Turns his attention toward the workplace. It says, exhort servants to be obedient to their own masters and to please them well in all things, not answering again, not purloining, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Back then, the servant and master relationship was the most common type of employment relationship. And so Paul is not um, addressing whether having slaves and masters is the best way or the right way. Um, Usually what Paul does is he just says, listen, if you're a master, you're a Christian, and so act like a Christian toward your servants. And if you're a servant, then you're a Christian, and act act like a Christian, Christ-like toward your masters. He's not trying to overthrow what society is doing at the time, but he's not condoning it either. What he's doing is he's just saying, listen, this is the setup that we have right now. So in the setup that we have, um, servants, you should be obedient to your masters. Listen to them. Do what they say. Please them well in all things. When you get an opportunity to do what's right and to work hard and, and to do what your master wants and expects and hopes of you, then do that thing. Not answering again. Instead of not, not arguing. Not always trying to make a fuss or cause a commotion. Not purloining. The idea of purloining is embezzling or keeping back or taking something that's not theirs. And so don't, don't be the kind of guy who, um, okay, your master tells you that you're supposed to go collect all of this grain and you just put that bag of grain that's yours for your family and you tuck it kind of away and then you deliver the rest. Don't be, don't be doing things that are dishonest, kind of. You see that all the time in the workplace, don't you? People that are just doing little things to take advantage of their position, their opportunity. Don't do that. Don't be that guy or girl. Um, not prolonging, but showing all good fidelity. Do you like how he, he's attaching these things together? Good fidelity is just good faith. And so show that your faith is good. Show that your belief is good. How do you do that? Well, you don't do things like stealing stuff. You do things like trying to please your master. You do things like not arguing. Your, your actions are 100% connected to how people perceive your beliefs to be. And so show that your faith is good. Show that your faith is real and effective and right. Give clear signs of good faith. And then he concludes with one of my favorite sentences in the Bible. Adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. The word adorn is cosmeo, which we get our word cosmetic from. It means to decorate or to garnish. And so he's telling the servants here, but I really think we can step back and we can see in all of these circumstances, no matter where you find yourself, you've probably been hit already by Titus, by Paul speaking to Titus, telling Titus. So in every circumstance you find yourself in, you ought to be adorning, um, decorating, garnishing the doctrine or the teaching or the truths of God our Savior In all things, in everything you do, make the gospel look beautiful. Grace is beautiful. 
and so show grace. Restraint, self-control, they're beautiful things. They're precious things. They're rare things. Purity and innocence and holiness is beautiful. Hard work without complaining. Thoughtfulness. Wisdom. All of those things are beautiful things. And so live a life that is by your life demonstrating that the gospel that you believe is beautiful. Now, this is not a case where Paul is saying, listen, the gospel needs a little bit of a makeover. And sometimes when we think of cosmetics and garnishing, it's like, okay, what we're doing is we're taking lipstick and putting it on pigs. That's the lipstick and pigs thing. Yeah, see? You knew it was coming. Um, that, that we're trying to take something that is just, just awful and then put enough makeup on it so that eventually we have nothing that looks like the original thing, but now it's looking like reasonably pretty and then saying, hey world, look what we have to offer. Just don't get too close. Right? The gospel is the most beautiful thing imaginable. There is absolutely nothing you can do to, to make the gospel better than it is. And every time you alter it, you take away from it, you don't add to it. And so what this is saying is live a life that just lets the gospel clearly shine through you. Get yourself out of the way. If everything you do is in line with the truths of the gospel, then everything you do will be beautiful. doesn't mean everybody's always going to like it, but it is beautiful. It's right. So whatever your circumstances and wherever you find yourself, whether you're quarantined with tuberculosis, find a way to serve. Help somebody go to the bathroom. If you're home with the kids, if you're working at a dead-end job or you're working at a great job, you're going to school every day. You're meeting with, with, with friends. I mean, whatever it is that you're doing, do it in a way that just clearly represents the beauty of the gospel. Get yourself and your sinfulness out of the way because the gospel is good. And so we should be adorning the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. So I want to give you a couple points here of application. Number one, the church is responsible for teaching gospel truth and setting godly examples. The church is responsible for teaching gospel truth and for setting godly examples. And this is at a very local and personal level. I'm not just saying that the universal church, somewhere out there, there should be somebody you can find on YouTube that does a good enough job of teaching gospel truth, of of setting a godly example. It shouldn't be just the book you read where you're like, man, I think every Christian should be like this. It's too bad our church is filled with all those other kinds. It should be that at a local and personal level, we can teach truth from the Word of God clearly, and we can set godly examples. Back in chapter 1, Paul told Titus how to confront the false teaching that he was facing. And so he describes what the false teaching looked like, what the false teachers looked like. And if you go through that list and you look at the characteristics that that Paul gave to the false teachers... And you compare them with the characteristic that Paul is saying is expected of believers in Christ. It is amazing how those two things just collide with each other in every respect. He says the false teachers are impure and defiled in chapter 1. In chapter 2 he says that the Christians are supposed to be in holiness, in acts that become holiness, um, chaste, um, uncorrupt, self-controlled, sober-minded, 
All of these things go completely against the idea of being impure and defiled, right? He says that they are gainsayers, vain talkers, deceivers, liars, whose mouths must be stopped, teaching things which they ought not because of their greed. And in Titus chapter 2, he says that Christians should be sound in the faith, not false accusers, teachers of good things, men and women and young men and young ladies of integrity who are saying the right things, sound in faith. He says in chapter 1 that false teachers are motivated by greed. That's what they're doing what they're doing for. In chapter 2, he says that Christians should be sincere, so that they should be doing what they're doing. Why? So that the word of God is not blasphemed, so that others will learn from their example, so that unbelievers will have no way of accusing you, so that you adorn the doctrine of God well. The motivation of the Christian should be not for themselves, but to say, this truth is so incredible. This, this Bible is so perfect and so pure and so holy that I want my life to live in a way that exalts this thing. Not me, but Christ. And there the false teacher is exalting himself and his greed. So you live in a way that is opposite what the false teacher is doing. It says in chapter 1 that their works deny God, that they are abominable, disobedient, and reprobate. Here he says in chapter 2 that Christians should be healthy in faith and love and patience. That they should be obedient. That in all things they should be demonstrating a pattern of good works. The true Christian believer should be everything that the false teacher is not. Because our gospel is true, it is powerful, and it is transformative. If that's true... If what we're saying, if this thing is true, then our lives really should change to match it. We shouldn't be seeing all those same things happening within the church, within those who call themselves Christians. We are responsible to emulate and to exemplify um, what living in the truth and by the truth looks like. A proper understanding of the gospel, therefore, necessarily produces joyful, generous, holy living. Where these things are absent, Paul says, so is the power of the gospel. So in the life of the person where these things are absent, where when we look at their characteristics and we start going, well, are they foolish talkers? Are they saying things that don't make any sense? Or even worse, saying lies and deception? Or are they speaking truth? Are they sound in the faith? Are they teaching good things? If we start to to look at your life and start seeing too many of these qualities and not enough of these, the power of the gospel is not working in your life. We should be concerned about something like that. We should all understand that the gospel should be transforming each of us. Every single one of us should be changing, becoming more like Christ. Every single one of us should be becoming more like this list. It's not just for the elite few. Number two, the purpose of this discipleship spans much farther than the church. So do you notice that what Paul has done so far is he's hammering into Titus, who has gone to the church of Crete to set the church in order and to teach the church how they're supposed to live and what they're supposed to be like, and all he's focused on up to this point 
is dealing with false doctrine, so trying to get the, the false teaching out of the church, and trying to teach the people in the church how to live. And so, so far, it seems like Paul has completely neglected evangelism. He's completely neglected the idea of going out into all the world to preach the gospel. That, he's, that so far, Paul is not concerned with what they're doing to reach their community for Christ. Because i tell you something, I think that the opposite is actually true. And do you know why? Because the purpose of discipleship spans much further than the church. Um, here he says that the young ladies are supposed to act the way they are. Why? So that the word of God be not blasphemed. Well, who is going to be blaspheming the word of God? Well, it's going to be the world around them. So the idea is, well, well, one of the things that need to happen is that we need to have um, young ladies who are, or, who are godly young ladies so that the world around them isn't looking at their lives and, and blaspheming the word of God. He goes on, he says in verse 8, um, that the, the young men or that Titus needs to, to live in the way that he lives. Why? So that um, you're speaking in a way that cannot be condemned so that he that is contrary, of contrary part may be ashamed having no evil thing to say of you. So again, the focus is on Titus and his speech within the church and yet the result of that is so that the people outside the church don't have any evil things to say about Titus and about his ministry there in the church. And then he makes it crystal clear in that last statement in verse 10 when it says that, that servants are to show good faith. Who are they showing good faith to? To everybody around them. What, that they're supposed to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. That they're adorning, that they're making the gospel look beautiful to the outside world. And the point is that when we get ourselves right in here, and when we're practicing discipleship right in here, it starts to impact the world automatically. It's just going to happen. Now, that doesn't negate the commands for us to go and to speak. We need to do those things too. But what I think happens sometimes is that we get so, um, so focused on the, the going and saying before we say, okay, well, well, I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do here in the body of Christ. And when the Bible talks about the commands for the church, it usually tells us to love people within here first and those who are unsaved. So the first act of the church is to love the church and then to go out in the community and love. And if we skip that first step, then we are not the attractive light that we're supposed to be. So we go out and we tell people that they should come, and they come, and they say, I don't don't know why you think this place is so good. I don't don't see anything special here. It kind of seems like the same type of club that I have when I go, whatever, to the golf club, right? No, there should be something special kind of love. That's why Jesus said, by this one thing shall shall all men know that you're my disciples, that you have love to one another. So we love each other properly, and that is attractive to the world. We live in a way that is pure and holy and right according to the gospel, and it is attractive to the world. And then, when we do go out and we speak the gospel to the world, it, it, all, it all comes together. It makes sense. It's powerful. <clears throat> the purpose of this discipleship spans much further than the church. The witness of the church begins in the church, but it doesn't end in the church. But it does begin here, and then we go out. Number three, the gospel will empower and is worthy of the efforts. Right? We're not just putting lipstick on pigs. The gospel we're talking about, it's going to empower what we do. 
What's wonderful about this is that he's commanding Titus to believe the gospel and to teach people how to live in the gospel while trusting that the gospel is actually going to allow him to do that. It all goes back. So the power is coming from the gospel. In order for Titus to do anything that Paul is telling him to do, he needs to be transformed by the grace of God. It's the only way it's going to happen. And when he does that, he sees, when he becomes transformed, when he's being transformed by grace, he sees the beauty of the gospel and he wants to live that thing out. And so it's worthy of everything we have and it will empower us to do what it's calling us to do. Because the great thing is when we come to Christ and we see what we're called to do, we say there's no way I could ever do that. There's no way you can be the disciple that you're supposed to be. There's no way you can make disciples like you're called to do. But what's great about the gospel is you might, you might say, yes, I understand that the gospel is worthy of that in my life, but I'm not able. And the gospel says, oh, don't worry about that. I'll make you able. Just start walking. Just start obeying. Just take some steps. Say, I'm scared. I, I don't know who to talk to. I don't know how to do, I don't know how to start this. I don't, I've never done this before. Just take some steps and trust God that he'll empower you as you go. He does that. I was talking to Rick and Eva this morning, and they were just talking about how Daisy, um, Eva's sister, has a, a mental disability, and she has been an incredible witness for the gospel um, where she's gone. And you think about that. God is, God is just in the business of showing his strength through weakness. And so weakness is, is a quality that's necessary if you want God to work in, through and empower you. The gospel will empower and is worthy of our efforts Our job is to point to something beautiful while that beautiful thing empowers us to hold our hand up and point. So, here's part of the problem for the church. Part of the problem is that it's not complicated. It's almost almost too easy. It almost seems like it should be more complicated. It almost seems like if it was really just us starting to love each other more and better and spending more time together and trying to pour your life into people. If, if that's what it was, it would have been happening a long time ago if that's all it took. What it is. We want some kind of like 10-step process where we're going to run this program at this time, this many weeks, and, and teach this thing each one of those weeks. And if we do all these right steps, then somehow, boom, it's going to happen. You know what's going to happen? You're going to feel like you're not a, you, if you start doing this, you start pouring your life into someone, you're going to feel like you, you walk with that person, you spend time with that person, and for weeks and weeks and weeks you wonder if you've done any good at all because you didn't have that deep conversation that you really hope to have, and it just doesn't seem like you've seen all the, the fireworks go off and the light bulbs in their head chain, go on and, and everything change. And, and then a year or two down the road, you realize, you know what? This person's still here. They're actually getting more involved. And they're coming out more. And they seem to be a little bit more serious about their faith. And all of a sudden you realize that all the work that you've put in accomplished so much more than you could have imagined. You didn't get to see it. It's not complicated. We just have to do it. Believe the right things. Do the right things. And then believe and do the right things in front of other people. With other people. That's it. The difference between a disciple-making church and a non-disciple-making church is the difference between a dead church and a living church. It's the difference between death and life. And if we don't focus on discipleship, if we don't try and 
bring other people along in their journey with Christ, if we don't help them to be better followers of Christ, to imitate Christ, church dies. Dies really quick. And we can have pretty podium. I, I, I look at the back from the back of our church and I think, man, our church is pretty. Like it's, and there's lights here that turn on too, and we should have had them on. It would be even prettier. But um, we can have everything. We could pave the parking lot. Mentioned this morning, right? We could do it all, and it would be a useless building if there's no discipleship making going on. We don't need that stuff to make disciples. But we need people in here to be like, you know what? These other people in the church, I'm going to try and love them and pour my life into them. And I know I'm not perfect, but hey, nobody is, and so um, let's start with whatever I can, whatever I can offer. You know what you'll find as you start pouring your life in other people, you start going to God because you recognize your need of Him to help you do that, and you grow too. It's just an amazing thing how it works. You just got to go. I'll close with this quote again from Kevin Young: "The one indispensable requirement for producing godly, mature Christians." is godly, mature Christians.